The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. We've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what we do at Sacred City. We preach exegetically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. Uh, and what we're, we're doing here with Ecclesiastes, this preacher, the narrator of this book, is helping us to examine, to take a long look at all of life under the sun. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that Ecclesiastes is not quite a, a nice uh, stroll through the park on a nice crisp spring day. It's not like that at all. In fact, it's more like zigzagging through a minefield as you're chased by bees and then you fall into a mud puddle and then someone says, you know what, while you're down there, go ahead and smell the flowers. That's kind of what it's been like because the preacher has been taking us through his philosophy and exposing to us the frustrations of life under the sun. Now, that's, that's a term that the preacher coins to help us see life as it is, life at face value. What you see is what you get. But the preacher, while exposing the, the frustration and the vanity, the vapor of life, he's also trying to help us. He's, he's helping us navigate through life and its frustrations. He's helping us ultimately know how to enjoy life as it comes. Now, for a few of you, Ecclesiastes affirms the inner cynic. You might feel justified in looking at the glass and saying, you know what, that's half empty. You, you might not have a problem agreeing with the preacher when he says, all is vanity. You, you look at our world, you see its brokenness, the frustrations. You see that it's, it's dim and dull and fading moment by moment. It's as if the, the Bible's finally given you permission to, to look and to mourn what life could have been. Now, for others of you who, who are more on the optimistic end of things, you see the glass half full, you see life through a rosy-colored lens. You, you, we've been sitting in Ecclesiastes, and you're just like, I think the theological term for it is Ecclesiastes is a bummer, Right? It's, it's frustrating. It's as if rain is on your parade. And, and what happens when you're in the midst of it, especially if you're an Enneagram 7, somebody who loves joy and wants to push away the hard and heavy stuff, you'll want to jump ahead. Right? You want to skip to the good stuff in the New Testament. We talk about positive and encouraging. Right? We want to talk about hope and love and faith and Jesus and how the gospel gives us purpose and, and meaning because this stuff in Ecclesiastes is really heavy. Now, if we feel that way about 45 minutes on a Sunday morning, chances are that you probably tend to feel that way about a lot of other things in your life. When a friend comes to you and and they're sharing their marital struggles, you kind of squirm away at that. When somebody's in missional community and and they're opening up and they're sharing just the messiness and the brokenness of of their sin, and you just want to, you know what, I think i got to get home, got to get the kids. Most of us will gravitate toward the mother-baby ward in hospitals and speed walk past the deathbeds. We rarely like to consider the heaviness, the gravity of life under the sun. Now, just an example of this personally, uh, within the last couple weeks, I had a high school friend of mine 
she lost her four-year-old daughter in a freak accident. Four-year-old daughter, girl full of life and energy, just gone. And as a father of a four-year-old, I can look at that situation and say, that is a tragedy. That upsets me. But there's also been something about this that I can acknowledge it and just want to move on. To actually, to, to something that stops me from being empathetic to the situation. To really feel, and I'm not saying just take her grief and absorb it, but to, to really sit in it and think, what happened? Now, to, to avoid or to prematurely escape the gravity of life, or even the gravity of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher tells us that's folly. In in chapter 7, verse 4, he says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. Right? That's a house of joy and, and just uh, enjoyment, in a sense, of, kind of blind to the reality of things. So today, my aim, and I hope your aim, is for wisdom. And we would step foot into the house of mourning together. Even if when we step in, we're keeping an eye open for the exits, right? We want to know how to get out if it gets too real. And as we sit in the living room of this house of mourning, as our... As our We sink into the couch that's really uncomfortable, leans to the middle. As we sit there and just observe what's going on, our hearts are going to be filled with questions, real questions, heavy questions. We want to know how is sorrow, how is grief a part of enjoying life? How can that be? What's to gain from sadness? If God is powerful, then why doesn't he just end this once and for all? And if you sit there with the parents who just lost their child, who just miscarried, you stand at the graveside of the widow, whether it was uh, something that happened last week or it's been decades removed, The grief can bubble over into anger. We start to become more aggressive with our questions. We look and say, what the hell? Literally. What is going on? This isn't fair. How come bad stuff happens to good people? This is is heavy stuff. But if you're willing to sit with the preacher if you're willing to make your way through chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes and consider, if you're willing to resist shaking your fist at God and saying, how dare you, if you're willing to avoid laughing it off with a stupid joke, brushing things aside, if you're willing to let things get uncomfortable and marinate in the pain for a moment, if you're willing to let your tear ducts open to endure soul ache, If you're willing to do that, the preacher can help us. The preacher can help us navigate those long, dark nights of life under the sun. Because the reality is you're either in one now, you've just come out of a night like that, or you're about to go into one. 
preacher wants to help us. This is part of living in a fallen world. And if you're brave enough to cast a a shadow in the doorway of the house of mourning, verse 12 of chapter 7 says, your life could be preserved. But I think it's the wisdom that the preacher has for us. It's not just a matter of preserving life, to get out by the skin of our teeth. What the preacher is aiming aiming for us to do is is to navigate, to have a, a deeper, truer sense of what it means to lie, to live to optimize our life under the sun. And so if you would, with me, open your Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll, we'll actually have a couple verses in chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, page 320. And we're going to navigate together with the Spirit's help and dive into the depths of wisdom. And I just want to pray, Father, would you help us? I know this is a soft spot for a lot of us. Maybe we, we're in the midst of mourning and this is just... It, it hurts to even go there. But Father, I, I pray that your grace would be with us as we navigate. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. My mom used to say, uh, when I was a kid, she used to say that I would make a good lawyer someday because of the uh, intensity and the amount of arguing that I used to do. <laughs> She, she, it, when I didn't like something, when, when I, something about the situation rubbed me the wrong way, I would push back. I'd try to argue with reason. And then when my reason would break down, I would resort to sort of uh, lashing out emotionally. Now, I'm in the parenting phase with my four-year-old where there is no reason. It's, it's just emotional lashing out, Right? But the preacher, as he's showing us life under the sun, some of the stuff we probably don't like, he, he's, he senses our inclination to push back about the lot that God has dealt to us as he exposes the frustrations. And so he, he tells us in chapter 6, verse 10, if you'll go there with me, he says, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he is. The one stronger is God. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? See, to argue with God, all you, all you want, all you can muster up is to, to add to the vanity of life under the sun. You can write scholarly dissertations. You can lash out emotionally. But arguing with God doesn't actually change things. You cannot persuade God to change the way things are as life under the sun presents. And so in that sense, words add to the vexation, the frustration, the vanity of life. Oftentimes, wisdom looks like holding your tongue because you probably do not know what's best for you. And as adults, we push back on that, right? I know what's best for me. But, but the preacher tells us here in verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes, or which, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? It's like my son who fights his screen time limitations and M&M's intake. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get what's happening. And so we're the same way. Our perception, our our view of life is awfully limited. 
And when I would used to lawyer up as a kid, it's because I thought I knew better. But wisdom, as we'll see, knows its limits. Wisdom knows that it's better to take this moment, whether it be a joyous occasion or a, a moment of mourning for what it is, than to fill the air with words of protest. Now, this doesn't mean that we stuff our feelings. We don't stuff what's going on with us. In fact, if there's any chapter in the Bible, it's chapter 7 that tells us that God isn't afraid of our emotions. But the preacher is trying to keep us from the snare that he himself has been in when he protested to God against the moment. If you skip ahead quite a ways and down to um, chapter tw- or verse 23 of chapter 7, The preacher tells us, all this I have tested by wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Now he's going, he's thinking back through, he's he's putting an answer here to this question that he asked back in chapter 6, 12, when he asked, who knows what's good for man? And and he's got a whole bunch of other questions that are come after that. But he's going to find out that the answers to these questions are too deep. He says that in verse 24, that which has been is far off and very deep. No, and deep and very deep. Who can find it out? Now, I'm not a scuba diver, but I did a little bit of research. And scuba divers are told not to go below, I think it's 130 feet below the surface. As they go deeper and deeper, the pressure does things to their body. Bones can actually break. The lungs can collapse, and it could go very, very poorly for a diver if not equipped properly. Now, the preacher is saying that that when he went to the depths of wisdom, he had a similar experience. That that just like there's a danger in going to deep, deep deeps with scuba diving, there's also a danger in going in deep on some of these questions. And so he says in verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness of its madness. He said, and I found something more bitter than death. He didn't find answers. He found something more bitter. In fact, he tells us in verse 27, the answers that he was looking for are never found. But he's found something bitter. He says, I found something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, this is not some battle of the sexes. This is not, this is not the preacher pointing at women saying, These women are bad. No, 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 no. Don't be mistaken about that. The preacher is alluding to this character called the forbidden woman that we're introduced to in Proverbs chapter 2. He says, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house stinks down to death, and her paths are to the departed. One who, none who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life. This adulteress 
uses your appetite for sensuality, whether that be in sex or food or drink or any kind of pleasure, and she uses that to bring you to your ruin. It's a trap pleasantly baited. She intends to trap you in her nets. That's what her heart is set on, to shackle you up. Proverbs 23, 27 says that a prostitute is a deep pit, a narrow well. There is entrapment when you let your desires carry you. And so many post-adolescent boys, men, boys posing as men, are in her trap. There's a, a vicious cycle perpetuated by excuses. See, the reality is, is this woman, the woman is still here, she's still begging for your attention, and if you're a guy, chances are she lives in your pocket on your cell phone and she's just one click away. Be warned. Because the sweet aroma of the woman leads to the stench of the soul's rotting corpse. Now, if anyone knew about this problem, it was Solomon, right, the preacher. This, the preacher is the voice of Solomon. If anybody knew about this problem, it was Solomon because he himself had 1,000 wives and side chicks. He's been entangled by the trapment of the woman. He, but he shows us, though he's been entrapped, he's not hopeless, that there is a way to avoid the woman. There's a way to get out of the trap of the woman, he did it, and if this is one of the battles that you face, so can you. But while breaking free from this trap is possible, very few people do it. Verse 28, he says that one in 1,000 people will escape. That's 0.1% of people will actually be willing to step out of the trap. Verse 26 tells us how. It tells us how to get out of the trap of the woman. He says, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now what he's saying here is if you cultivate a heart that says, my desire is for God no matter what. If you cultivate a desire in your heart for God that is so strong, it will not be allured away by the temptation of that woman. It's not that you become asexual or, or you detach yourself from sexuality or pleasure, but your sensual appetite is conformed to your appetite for God. And in that, beauty happens. Thomas Kramer, he's a Puritan, he called this the expulsive power of a new affection. He says the way to replace your desires that are leading to destruction are to replace those desires with the desire that will lead you to life. Because here's the, the reality is desires don't go extinct. They don't. They don't just go away overnight. They have to re be replaced by a desire that's for something stronger and more beautiful. That's the only way to, to resist temptation long term. That's the only way. You, you cannot muscle through temptation. Not long term. You can maybe do it for a day or two. 
But if, if you cultivate an appetite for God, you set your heart on God, your eyes will be fixed there. And so he says, he who pleases God escapes her. Now, I, I, I may have gotten veered away here on a bunny trail, but it's an important trail to go down. But this passage isn't necessarily a passage about fighting temptation. The preacher is primarily concerned with helping us to enjoy life by accepting what is. By by looking at the God-given lot, the, the life that God has given us and saying that there is something here to be enjoyed. Now he showed this in chapter six. Right, how to do that, right? We enjoy what's already in our hand as we look down at what's in our hand. We look up to God. But today it's, it's a question of how when you look down in your hand and you don't see anything in there, how that still leads you to God. It's, it's a matter of accepting life as it comes. There's a danger in not accepting the times of sorrow, the hard times, the grief. See, when we encounter sadness and grief, sometimes our first instinct is to push it away. Like, we, want, we don't want anything to do with that. That's too heavy. No, thank you, God. Right? This is what it looks like to refuse what is. It's, it's to push away. It's to say, you know what, God, I think I'll pass on this specific thing. I'll, I'll set my mind on something else. I'll get distracted. And so the question is that we need to ask ourselves that in the midst of this, if, if this is what the lot has been dealt to us, how do I navigate through this? How does God help me out in these heavy seasons? How does he bring life to me? And so the preacher carries on. He intends to lead us into wisdom by offering us a counterintuitive perspective on sorrow. There was a man named uh, Horatio Spafford. He was, he was a Chicagoan, uh, Chicagoan um, back in, in the late 1700s. Uh, he was a businessman. He was a Christian. Um, and, and in the late seven, 1700s, he, uh, he had a business that uh, went up in a big fire. And that same year, he lost his son to pneumonia. Two years later, as his life sort of got sorted out, things got to a stable point, he said, you know what, my family needs a vacation. Let's go to England and enjoy what's there. And at last minute, as they were getting ready to leave for vacation, he had some business that he had to tend to. So he sent his, his wife and his four daughters on this ship to, to go on their vacation. He said, I'll meet you up in a couple days. And on their way over, They were shipwrecked. He lost his four daughters. Only his wife survived. And he got a message from his wife that said, I'm the only survivor. What should I do? And so a few days later, he boarded a ship and he set across the ocean to meet up with her. And as he was dealing with the grief that had been dealt to him over the course of the last two or three years, as he was dealing with the loss of his four daughters that just happened, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, whatever my lot 
thou hast taught me to say, it's well with my soul. Now, how could he say a such, such a thing as this in the wake of so much tragedy? Or did, did he even mean it? I think he did. And I think he did because he understood what the preacher was saying in chapter 7, that it made him spiritually buoyant. So when the circumstances of life come and they try to pull you down into the depths, his spiritual integrity, his faith in God kept him afloat. Doesn't mean he didn't grieve. Oh boy, did he grieve. And so we turn our eyes to chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 7. For this, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, you only know if something is good until you reach the end of it. You cannot determine if a book is good or not just by the first chapter. You have to get all the way through. Now, this is why the preacher pairs a good name with the day of death. He says those two things are better than ointment and birthdays. And he tells us why in verse 8. He says the end of something is better than the beginning. So he's saying the aroma of ointment is going to fade away. The celebration of a birthday will disappear. And so the preacher has a healthy appreciation for death, the finality of things, the good name. And in doing so, this allows him to live a full life, to take life as it comes. Now verse 2 says... The living ought to consider the brevity of life because no matter who you are, it's coming for you. Right? One out of one people die. Therefore, it is better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians don't party. But this doesn't mean we have no reason to celebrate. In fact, if anybody has a reason to celebrate, it's Christians. But to be preoccupied with parties without meaning is to distract ourselves. And laughter can do the same thing. Right? You feel down and you turn to YouTube uh, videos or, or your favorite sitcom to distract you from the heaviness of life and taking death to heart. Right? That, that's our way of saying, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to think about this. But the preacher tells us why we should do this in verse Three says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. That seems paradoxical, right? By sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. How does this happen? Now, not long ago, there was a movie, an animated movie that came out called Inside Out. Um, if you haven't seen it, I, I highly recommend it, even if you're, a, you're an adult, um, because it was a movie that was first of its kind in dealing with how emotions work. Most people, I think, in our society are, lack some emotional intelligence. And so this was a good step in the right direction. Because they're tracking with the emotions of a preteen girl uh, who, who wants to cover up the sadness that she experienced in her life with good vibes. She's always chasing laughter and fun and enjoyment. But we're told in verse 6 that the laughter of the fools is like thorns crackling under the fire. It's just vanity. Now, if there's anybody who tends to do this, I think it's church people. Church people tend to cover up the hard stuff, right? Everything's good, brother. Blessed and highly favored. 
Right? We, we, we try to dismiss the, the sad parts of our life by overcompensating. In fact, I think the people who are typically the most joyful and, and uh, animated about life are probably the ones who have the most sorrow to cover up. Now, if you see your tendency to do this, if you're like, you know what, I, I think I do that. I hide from the heaviness. And verse five offers a gentle rebuke for you. It says, the rebuke of the wise is better than the song of fools. That it's better to get a wake-up call to reality of sadness than to keep jamming to happy by Pharrell Williams. Because when we face the depths of sadness, when we're there, when our shoes, when our feet are in the house of mourning, that's when we can be lifted to the heights of gladness. The deeper the valley, the higher the mountaintop. Now, the breakthrough moment in this girl's story, in, in the movie Inside Out, was when she recalled being at her lowest and then being comforted. That led to a whole new experience of, of gladness that she had never had before. And that is the promise that we get from Psalm 34, where, where God tells us that he's near to the brokenhearted, that he saves the crushed in spirit. Therefore, it is better to patiently linger in the house of mourning than it is to be proud and walk away quickly. Now, pride has always been one of our biggest barriers between us and God. And it happens when we face sorrow as well because we have this mentality of I can manage. I see things for what it is. It's a heavy situation, but you know what, God, I got this. I can manage. I'll push through. That's pride. But if we were to humble ourselves and turn to God in our time of need, God turns our weeping into gladness. He takes our funeral clothes and he clothes us with joy. Just as we must guard ourselves when we come into the house of God, we must also watch our feet in the house of mourning because the wise are corruptible. That's what verse 7 tells us, that surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. To forget that there is a just judge beyond the sun who's going to make all things right someday can lead us, even the wise people, to taking matters into our own hands. It's when the tug of grief is so strong that it, it breaks the tether that was between us and God. That wisdom begins to elude us, that we veer away from him, that we can find the dark corners in the house of mourning, of anger and nostalgia. Verse 9 and 10 tell us this. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of the fool. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. See, not all anger belongs to the fool. God gets angry. He does it slowly, and so do the wise. But the fool is quick to anger and slow to resolve. And as anger boils, it comes with the temptation to shake our fist at God. A perfect example of this is the story of Job, if you're familiar with that. Probably one of the most depressing stories of the Bible. The man who's got it all, a family, he's got wealth, he's got things, and it all gets taken away from him. 
And in the midst of his agony, his wife is so frustrated. She goes to him and says, you know what, Job, you know what you should do? You should curse God and die. Be angry at God. Now that's the response of a fool. This isn't foolish because the heart isn't hurt. Right? The hurt is real. It's foolish because they don't have the perspective to understand the larger scope of things. It's the same way for the harkbacker, right? somebody who lives in the past. If they honestly call the past the good old days, then they have a version of revisionist history. Right? There might be aspects that are better or seem better, but there's always going to be futility and frustration in the past as well. It's where unrestricted emotionalism flares up. The preacher wants to remind us of the value of wisdom. In verse 11, he says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. An advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And then in verse 19, he says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Wisdom is an advantage for everyone under the sun. It's worth protecting. It is strength and it preserves our life. And wisdom is summarized in this. It's knowing your limits. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? See, when you're in the house of mourning, you can't renovate it. You can't board up the windows and pretend like it doesn't exist. God has dealt this lot to us. It's, it's, it's a concoction of joy and sorrow, of sweet and bitter, of laughter and tears. And we cannot set it straight. Now, many people, when bad things happen, they think that this is some sort of a curse or some sort of punishment. I did something wrong, and God's coming down on me hard. And this was especially the worldview that the Hebrews had, the original audience here, had of of, of their life. That when bad stuff happens, it means God's angry at me, and he's coming down on me. Now, there might be some instances where folly leads to, to consequences, right? If you break the law, you might go to jail. But not all circumstances are how they might appear. Chapter 6 shows us this with material, material wealth. This blowed up their paradigm of the Hebrew life as well. That just because you have stuff and wealth and possessions doesn't mean you're blessed. Now likewise, this is showing us just because there's adversity in your life doesn't mean that this is bad. In fact, verse 14 tells us that God made both prosperity and adversity. That prosperity is meant to lead us to enjoying the gift and the giver of the gift. And God's way of of blessing us is to keep us occupied with that joy. But we also see that adversity is God-ordained frustration with the intention of refining us and cultivating wisdom in our life. Do Do you see adversity that way? Adversity is God-ordained frustration with the intention of refining us and cultivating wisdom. 
It's in the seasons of adversity where God's presence is oftentimes most felt. Just think of Psalm 23, the famous psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, you are here with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. It's in those tricky seasons, those hard seasons where God is present. I love Samuel Rutherford has a a quote here that just summarizes. He says, God keeps his choicest wines in the cellar of affliction. God keeps his choicest wines in the cellar of affliction. Now, knowing our sorrow isn't wasted, that God is actually using this for good, he's he's refining us by it. It doesn't make our pains hurt less, but it gives purpose to it. It helps us see that there's a long game here. And, and, and a lot of times we can't see that clearly. A lot of times we're right in the heat of it and we can't see beyond the moment. But God's doing it. And, and one of the most frustrating things, that to be in the house of mourning, is when you see an upright person being dealt a bad hand. Right, the person's doing all of the right things, yet here they are in the house of mourning. And it's not like they're just visiting. They like live there. That was perplexing for the preacher in verse 15. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. When you hear that, you can't help but think of what happened in Texas this week. Ten people dead and the shooter still alive. It's a tragedy. How can this be? Why is this so frustrating? And there's no real answer. Not really. I mean, he doesn't have an answer for it. And it's kind of weird because he goes from here and he, he gives us some kind of confusing advice here in, in uh, verses 16 and 18, 16 through 18. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. That's confusing. (laughs) It might seem like he's saying, you know what, find the moral middle ground. Don't be too good and don't be too bad. Just be right there in the middle. But that's not what he's saying at all. See, the solution to not destroying yourself or dying before your time is to fear God. To have a reverent posture toward God. To understand who God is, that he is holy and you are not. That he knows time and space and everything that's going to happen and you don't. He's able to use everything for good and you can't see that yet. So he says to fear God. A healthy reverence or a healthy fear of God keeps us from folly, of of being straight up fools, and keeps us from hyper-spiritualism, a life of religiosity. But in fearing God, he also makes us self-aware. 
In verse 20 through 22, I know we're coming to an end here. He says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not, to take, do not take heart all the, that, bleh, all the things that people say, lest, your heart, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Here's why. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He's saying everybody's sinning. Everybody's guilty. There's not actually a righteous man. And so he says, don't go shaking your finger at people who sin like you or who sin differently from you. People who make a big deal about other people's sin typically don't see their own. Chances are people like that are clothed in self-righteousness, just like the Pharisees that Jesus confronted. They, they, they can see the, the splinter in someone else's eye, but not the log in their own. See, true wisdom reveals to us the crookedness of man's heart, not just in general, but personally. And at the depths of the preacher's wisdom, he says in verse 29, see this alone I have found that God made man upright. That God made man good. But they have sought out many schemes. Now Psalms 14, uh, Romans 3 can affirm what the preacher has come to discover about life under the sun when the Apostle Paul writes in, in chapter 3 of Romans, he says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. See, if God were just to leave us alone in this state, to leave us to our scheming, then this would be a very sad ending, that there would be no hope in the book of Ecclesiastes. We would be forever in the house of mourning. But this is not the end of the story. Scripture tells us that God weeps with us under the futility, under the, the grief, the sorrow of life under the sun. Just as Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, Lazarus, we also experience grief. Jesus is present in the house of mourning. Nobody is in the house of mourning alone. But unlike us, God has the ability to straighten out what has been made crooked. God has the ability that we don't. In fact, what grieved the preacher that, that the righteous man's life is cut off and the unrighteous keep on going is the means in which God saves us from the vanity, the futility of life under the sun. That God sent the only truly righteous, perfect man never sinned, the man named Jesus, to come and die a sinner's death. That Jesus was actually marked as the man of sorrows. If anybody knew the house of mourning, it was Jesus. 
And Jesus did this. The righteous man died for unrighteous people so that the unrighteous people who profess and believe in the work of Jesus would be credited with his righteousness and their life would be extended forever with a promise that life under the sun would not always be the way it is. That one day every tear will be wiped away. That every ounce of sadness will be done away with. In fact, God is catching all of our tears in bottles right now. He knows exactly the measure in which how to pay back all the grief that we experience in this life. And the proof for this is that God takes the cross, the most sorrowful, grievous thing in, in mankind, a man murdering another man, and he transforms it into a symbol of life. See, God takes the crooked and he makes it straight. God takes the house of mourning and he can transform it into the house of joy if you meet him there. And because of this work of Jesus, we have great promises to hold on to. That Jesus will never leave us or forsake us in the midst of our sorrow. He won't just cut us off. He's there with us, his hand in ours. And now this transforms the words that we utter. Now, now as we fill the, the air with words, it's not with words of protest, but where words of supplication, of intercession. And Jesus is there reinforcing our prayers for us so that the Father might hear them. It's Jesus who's at work making all things, even good or bad, work together for the good of those who love God. And so now we don't have to be afraid when we step into the house of mourning. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You'll find that in the house of mourning, God's grace is sufficient for you to endure the grief, the heaviness of life under sun, but also to thrive in adversity because it is from God and God is using it for your good. And if you feel like you're in the house of mourning right now, maybe you feel like you're alone, I just want to invite you that you're not. We're here for you. We're a church that's committed to walking into the house of mourning with other people to bear one another's burdens, to, to share in the grief, to cry out to God for help. Father, we thank you for this, this word, though heavy. This morning we ask, Father, that you would move near to us. Maybe we're in a season of grief or coming out of one or, or whatever our lot might be. Father God, would you be near to us? Would you help us to see how sorrow in the hand of a merciful God is a tool for refinement, would you help us to, to be willing to resign ourselves in a healthy way to you and your will, to accept life as it comes at us, to be wise, and to enjoy life within the context of your love. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.